Blog Talk Radio. Anthony, do you hear it? No, I don't. Music? No. That's what it's called. <laughs>
Africa on the moves, and today Anthony will be moderating the program in Lee's absence. Anthony, thank you, thank you, Sister Susie. Um, welcome to Africa on the move, and uh, we uh, let's see, we uh, you know how we get started with our party. We introduce uh, the uh, panelists. Uh, for tonight And uh, tonight uh, Let's see I'll start off with Brother Haki okay. You know my thing Hey but peace Brother Anthony My name is Haki Kamal from Mishoki. Uh Of course you know I'm with African Awareness And my thing is all about institution building uh, But certainly uh, One of the things in terms of institutions Are being important is that when you look in terms of the systems that govern life in, in the U.S. society, there's a tremendous amount of disparity that exists in the context of the society. And one wonders why, such, why so much disparity exists. But certainly in the context when you talk about those institutions geared toward the health of the populace, when you look at, when you look at the kind of practices they employ in terms of um, sacrificing health care for, for, for the bottom line, it raises the, 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 the question in terms of just how important is the lives of human beings in the context of capitalist America. Uh, and, and with that in mind, I wrote this piece, and I think it, it, it sort of illuminates the problems in terms of uh, the, uh, the disparity between, you know, um, philosophically wanting to do that which is right uh, versus a system which is, which is um, across the board geared toward doing that which is wrong. So in any event, Brother Anthony, check this out. Now, if recollection serves me correctly, Hume, the philosopher, once stated, and I paraphrase, morality does not exist only opinion and social convention. Nowhere is this more evident than the philosophical thrust that undergirds capitalism, a system so lacking in empathy for life, it would rather destroy life itself than fail to fulfill its objective of accumulating intangibles like control, power, and money. In the process of obtaining these intangibles, Biodiversity, the, the planet needs to survive, are sacrificed, and the self-immolation or destruction of life is assured. Self-immolation in itself is a slow process. As a catalyst, the routine negation of human life is often the starting point in planetary demise. Concealed in deceptive logic, it conditions us to, re- to reject the logical outcomes that comes with the use of institutional power for power's sake. One recent article I read points out the inevitability of the negation of life when capitalistic-focused institutions are free to use their power in an arbitrary way that elevates the intangibles over human life. The article entitled, How a Hospital Chain Used Poor Neighborhoods to Turn Huge Profits. While expressing the exploitation of poor people is not unusual, in fact, capitalism demands it. The unusual aspect focuses around government's attempt to address healthcare disparities and the atrocious medical outcomes for poor people, and specifically entire African communities that are systematically exploited financially that offers little by way of medical care or medical equipment needed to combat illness. The article points out that federal government established a program whereby hospitals with nonprofit status 
could purchase pharmaceuticals or prescription drugs at a steep discount, all the while charging those with medical insurance full price. Reasoning behind this government plan was hospitals located in impoverished communities could use the excessive profits obtained to reinvest in the facilities to purchase medical equipment and salaries to minimize staff turnover. Government planning, despite right-wing criticism, was very effective. Claims of free market efficacy had anticipated, anticipated without markets dictating terms of medical care, government intervention or socialism in the marketplace could never work effectively. Free market capitalists were wrong. Lonsa Coors Mercy Health, one of the largest healthcare chains in the U.S., brought in $1 billion in profits while setting, <coughs> setting on $9 billion in cash reserves, according to hospital financial data. The fact it brings on average $100 million per year tax-free and tax avoidings in terms of federal, state, and local taxes, averaging $440 million per year, this is according to the Loan Institute, means that the possibility of insolvency is remote. The socialist principles employed by the federal government were successful in that the windfalls anticipated materialized, providing this, these nonprofit hospitals with an infusion of cash, cash that could be invested in corporate and or financial bonds without utilization of the $9 billion in reserves. Now, I should add at this point, no one would dispute the potential for volatility of the bond market, and certainly investors with high yields carry some risk. But the option to manage those risks by diversifying and hedging does exist. Now, now that I have dispelled notions of why nonprofit hospitals must be prudent in managing their earnings by cutting medical services and or equipment, I can return to the economic benefit of socialism and the economic gains associated with providing care for the indigent. Now, without government policy that, that essentially provided tax cuts for nonprofit hospitals, the reality is medical care for poor people would not only be unattainable but unaffordable. Given the decline or con con contraction of capitalism because of the inability to incorporate the interests of humanity, one has to ponder without social planning, what would the healthcare system look like without some socialism? Not good. Now, according to the recent medical care report, it was reported during the emergence of COVID-19, there were only 120 beds per 1,000 patients in the U.S., the lowest ratio in the Western world. Many believe the market would ensure care for all COVID-19 patients in need. The market failed miserably. According to the Department of Health and Human Services, over the course of the pandemic, 98 million individuals will be infected twice or more, given a population in the U.S. of 300 million people. 20 million requiring hospitalization, 4 million requiring intensive care unit level of care. Obviously, 120 beds in a marketplace cannot accommodate these kinds of numbers. The problem with not enough beds in hospitals is compounded by the fact little under 1,200 trauma centers exist in the contiguous 50 U.S. states. Why would anyone conjecture capitalism markets would accommodate the needs of humanity is hard to fathom. Additional hospital beds under capitalism would have negatively impacted profit margins. For the capitalists, it was better to increase medical costs for those insured, and if the rest die for lack of care, so what? That's how markets work. The trade-off was simple, profits or deaths, profits won. In the case of bonds of course, who benefited from public largesse or government fund funding, the mandate to provide Medicare for the poor was sabotaged. Instead, bonds of course used the windfall profits to invest in hospitals and wealthy neighborhoods. The contractual agreement between bonds of and the government were abrogated by bonds of spending about $4 million only 
on improvements in the hospital in the poorer neighborhoods. The director himself was awarded $6 million in salary, essentially for stripping the poorly staffed and equipped hospital of resources serving chiefly as a shell. How did Bonds Accord get away with skirting their contractual agreement with government to provide care for the poor uh, and the poor church community in Richmond, Virginia? A couple of reasons. One, the agreement, the agreement is to provide care. In other words, the government stipulation is to provide care. The quality care does not, was not stipulated by government, only that care be administered. A poorly staffed ER and pharmacy satisfied government's requirements. According to insiders, Bonds Accord managers was keenly aware of this, this, this policy. Secondly, encoded in capitalism DNA is the right to make profits without government intrusion dictating the business model used. Capital should be used to increase wealth and investments, <laughs> which is usually the engine employed to increase wealth. Any possibility of preventing Bond Accords from using its earnings to advance the mission of corporate profitability established by the U.S. Constitution stated in the preamble could never be abridged. In other words, bond support it what Bonsco did was legal and just. Now, socialism may accommodate the needs of humanity, but a system diametrically opposed to the collective will always proceed along the capitalist path, even when it reveals itself to be both counterproductive and anti-humane. And, uh, Brother Anthony, I close with that. Uh, thank you, Brother Haki. Uh, next, we'll go to uh, Brother Robert. Thank you, thank you, Brother Anthony. Uh, greetings to everyone within the sound of my voice, especially the illustrious panelists. My name is Robert Andrew Moses. I've been in the struggle for scientific socialism from the moment I was introduced to Marxism during a government class back in my high school years, 1968. I call Marxism the race to cure racism. I bear witness that there's one God, Jesus, who is the author and finisher of my faith, and that Mao Zedong is his messenger for government. Fathers, help your children. And we don't reverse correct verdicts. I'm pro-choice, and I vote. I believe women hold up half the sky. Therefore, I'm for the Equal Rights Amendment, ERA, yes. And we continue to struggle to, to, to unite the many, to defeat the few, and to have truth prevail. Free Julian Assange. And thank you for allowing me to be on the show. You're welcome. Uh, thank you, uh, Brother Robert. Next, we'll go to Sister Eleanor. Good evening, Brother Anthony and fellow panelists. Good evening to you, Haki, Susie, Anthony, and Robert Moses. My name is, and to our listening audience, both here and abroad, my name is Eleanor Johnson. I am an artist and educator, environmentalist, and a human rights advocate. I'm delighted to be here this evening. Uh, the struggle continues. As we can see, the uh, Sahel region of Africa is not only at war with itself, nation to nation, there's an incredible environmental war going on right now. The drought is outrageous, and people are uh, about to face uh, what could be a famine in the next 
few months unless something is done. I'm delighted to be on the show this evening. I hope we have an opportunity to discuss the struggle that the world faces, and I agree with Brother Robert. We need to free Julian Assange right now. No, that's one problem that we could resolve. Journalism is not a crime. Thank you. Thank you, uh, Sister Eleanor. Uh, let's see. One. Uh, uh, let's see. A comment on um, the uh, uh, the point that Haki made regarding healthcare in uh, under capitalism, and uh, it is uh, the quality of, uh, the quality that healthcare the the masses receive is consistent with the philosophy of capitalism. And that is that, uh, that profits reign supreme. Uh, capital dominates, takes priority over human life. And uh, uh, that has been true of capitalism since its inception. Uh, let's see, and also this is uh, this is related uh, to the point that uh, Sister Eleanor made regarding uh, the environment. Environmental uh, issues also take a backseat toward the maximization of profit. Okay. All right. Uh, we'll uh, take a cultural break, and uh, when we come back, we'll discuss what is going on in our in in your world and community. Zero, longitude zero, planned by the Creator. Cisanthropus was the first man found on the Earth. That Earth was the motherland, Africa. We know that without total understanding of what happened in the past, it would be difficult to relate to the future. We know that within the structure of the music, there should be a message, and the message should be truth. So now, we give you Africa, the center of the world.
against Polish defendants by dubious cross-examination or skillfully not using incriminating evidence that would ensure conviction against a police officer. Likewise, judges would employ pretrial rulings favorable to the defendant, setting the tenant and temperament predisposed to ensuring the acquittal for the defendant. Two recent cases come to mind. One, the Kyle Rittenhouse case, and two, the Oath Keepers uh, trial, uh, currently, currently being tried. In the case of Kyle Rittenhouse, Judge Bruce Schroeder ruled the video, the video Rittenhouse posted stated, I will, quote, I will shoot shoplifters, end quote, could not be used to establish motive. The ruling was particularly ironic because he shot two people he perceived as contributing to lawlessness, precisely the motivation alluded to in shooting shoplifters. Schroeder's, <coughs> Schroeder's made additional rulings that confounded legal observers. He ruled the individual shot and killed by Rittenhouse could not be referred to as victims by prosecutors. Oddly, this, the, their very deaths were a result of someone else's actions, and to rule the two individual lives like agency denies the power of Rittenhouse and his AR-57 assault rifle. Unless Rittenhouse is acting under the color of law or as a law enforcement official, it's reasonable, it's reasonable, it reasonably can be argued that two men who lost their lives were victims. Now, Schroeder's ruling became even more bizarre. He encouraged those in attendance of the trial to applaud a defense witness for Rittenhouse, who happened to be a military veteran. The symbolism of patriotism was quite evident. Since Rittenhouse's actions was received in keeping with law and order, American political stability, what he did was in the best interest of America, not criminal. So much for this question of blind justice. The second case involving the Oath Keepers founder, the judge ruled the death list obtained by raiding the home of Oath Keepers member retired Lieutenant Colonel Thomas Cardwell was inadmissible because it would be prejudicial and highly inflammatory. The death list in question enumerates those perceived as political enemies to Trump's re-election and the necessity of strategy to neutralize their influences. Among those listed were Ruby, were Ruby Freeman, an elder African woman, and her daughter, Wandrea Moss. Helen out of Georgia, both women, election workers, lacked the power to overturn the state's election and why two powerless women would be on the death list by Oath Keepers is difficult to contemplate. Both women, appearing for the Genesis uh, Committee hearing, talked about threats to their lives and the level of fear they endured, even to this day. When, when Judge Meta rules release of this information is prejudicial, it does not take into consideration information pertaining to the death list is widely known and disseminated. The very real-life impact on these two women seems a very indispensable aspect of justice. Even though the judge's ruling is sound and is definitely linking the, and definitively linking the document to the abhorrent treatment of the women, the women received, the conspiratorial aspect of the trial should be afforded more latitude in pursuit of justice. Current precedent exists under RICO statutes, which allows for greater latitude in pursuit of justice. Why can't this trial, which represents an essential threat to the state, receive similar leniency? So there's, so there's, so there's a notion, in fact, that, uh, that the judges act uh, in, a, in a manner that's non-partial. It doesn't always pan out. And the reality is when we talk about the systematic injustice that exists in society, it can only exist to the extent that judges are willing to interpret co uh, constitution statutes or laws in a way to preserve uh, these injustices that take place in society. So we have to keep in mind, so when we talk about these, these systematic injustices, we have to keep in mind the role judges play in terms of facilitating these injustices. And that is something that certainly, you know, you know as, as oppressed people, we have to, 
bring to contemplate and think about very, very seriously. And I'll close with that, Brother Anthony. Thank you, Brother Haki. Uh, Brother Robert, uh, what is going on in your world and community? Right. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Um, we heard some arguments in the Supreme Court this this week. Uh, the first time the sister, uh, I believe her name is Jackson, uh, presented arguments. Uh, she defended the Second Amendment and the Fourteenth Amendment, showing that they were uh, intended to to rectify the the injustices. Uh, uh, faced by people of color and black people in particular, and that it was to uh, to try to level the playing field. And I thought she, she did some real good arguments. Uh, uh, meanwhile, the January 6th committee uh, voted unanimously to subpoena Donald Trump and uh, and hopefully this this will lead to justice eventually. And hopefully the Department of Justice will take up this case because this uh, there's a possibility that this committee may not be able to continue after the midterm elections. Uh, those are the two main things that happened as far as I can see this week. Thank you. You're welcome. Um, Sister Eleanor. What is going on in your world and community? Well, one of the big concerns is the January 6th hearings and the information that uh, was released in the planning and the foresight that, and the, that began, as far as we can tell, back in uh, 20. 19 and that the uh January 6th uh, was well planned and they were uh, well armed and intend to come uh with uh armed weapons to undermine and destroy the US government by um uh, two means, one using the media and brainwashing to suggest that the elections were improper. Um, it was determined that uh, President Trump had decided uh, back in November before the election that if he lost the election, he would claim that the election was stolen. That was a, a strategy, a plan. And the backup was the uh, military uh, groups, uh, such as the Oath Keepers and the Proud Boys, that were going to and did take over the Capitol. Meanwhile, uh, we're going to face a Supreme Court that's going to be hearing important issues concerning voters' rights, um, concerning affirmative action, 
and uh, these are very important issues issues that uh, we face, especially with so many states having haven't um, enforced or instated laws that violate or restrict voters' rights and access. And we've seen this happening across the country. Meanwhile, the November uh, elections are extremely important in that if people who believe the election was stolen when they know it wasn't, but they're willing to put forth this lie and uh, promote it, are elected. Uh, We will see uh, something we haven't seen in the world uh, in almost three quarters of a century, and that is uh, authoritarian-type government, potentially, in the United States. Now, we already see it in, in, in Peru with Bolsonaro, and we see it in India, but to see it in a Western country. So this is a very dangerous time for us, and the Supreme Court really has to um, make sure that it stays off of the neck of the affirmative action movement. It only has an effect in two venues, and that's in education and employment. It is the only place where the word black is used because it is referring to African Americans. And our rights are at stake. Uh, One case that they're hearing involves Harvard, and uh, it's it's, uh, awful that the Ivy Leagues are uh, being, are where these cases are coming from. So uh, all of this is happening while we see the winter coming and the people in Afghanistan having no access to heat and having food shortages. And we continue to see uh, propaganda being pushed forward as if uh, Russia is the reason that uh, people are starving in in Africa. And there is no mention of the drone strikes that occurred in Somalia by the U.S. earlier this year or the continued bombardment of the people of Yemen by the Saudis. So uh, these are things that I reflect on in my day-to-day life 
while we continue to see uh, Cuba suffer with the loss of 50,000 homes because of the hurricane and uh, the people of Puerto Rico suffering as well. And uh, I hope that we will be able to discuss these issues this evening on the show. Thank you. Uh, thank you, uh, Sister Eleanor. Uh, co- a couple of comments on some of the observations that have been made to this point. I noticed that all three of you uh, made comments on the justice system, which does not get enough attention because of the uh, of the mishap perception that justice is blind. It is not. Uh, like the other two branches of government, uh, there is a built-in bias in the justice system uh, because uh, a lot of the, the judges are political appointees. They aren't elected to their positions. Uh, and uh, they are appointed by uh, political officials uh that are theoretically elected by the people, but uh, but uh, uh, let's say if we if we discussed uh, numerous times on uh, on this program, uh, most of your political uh, p- officials are in the pockets of uh, the uh, the U.S. bourgeoisie. And uh, and uh, they make their decisions accordingly. And uh, so, uh, actually, the justice system is no more objective than uh, than uh, than the other two branches of government. And uh, the decisions that have been made recently, uh, you know, uh, 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 bear that out in terms of the types of decisions that have been made. And uh, uh, let's see, I would add that uh, having uh, African justices, uh, you know, when the oppression we're facing is systemic, does not uh, solve our problem. Uh, You know, it's mere symbolism. And uh, let's see, and um, you know, uh, you know, things are, uh, you know, are getting worse all the time as uh, we struggle, uh, you know, for justice in an unjust system. Uh, any uh, a- 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 any comments on that by anyone? Definitely, the uh, more than ever, we see that the judicial system is um, not blind, but in effect a tool. We've seen this in Florida with the uh, Donald Trump case. It was a Donald Trump appointee who made uh, 
uh, who uh, did not recuse herself, but uh, chose to sit and uh, is the sitting judge at Mar-a-Lago. So we can see that there are numerous uh, comp- uh, com- um, that's uh, fascism at, at work, uh, and uh, we see that uh, uh, the one thing happening is that this is uh, still uh, this country is a republic, so New York is holding strong in taking action against Trump and and uh, taking legitimate political action against him, not for political reasons, but simply for crimes that were committed and that a grand jury has seen and found reasons to indict uh, Trump, for example, but you certainly, uh, as um, it is certainly um, becoming a tool of the petty bourgeoisie and the ruling class, and this is where people have to stand up, quite frankly, and fight for their voters' rights and make sure that those rights that were so hardly fought for in the 20th century are still enforced and maintained. Uh, When we're combating capitalism, we have to look at what are uh, important reforms that serve our interests and uh, protect our liberties as we move forward uh, to have uh, a revolution that liberates uh, the working masses from their oppressors, the 1%, and the corporate uh, minority. Okay. Uh, Listen, I want to raise an an issue uh, for us to discuss briefly. Uh, This weekend... March the 35th anniversary of the assassination of uh, Thomas Sankara, uh, who was the um, uh, head of state of uh, Burkina Faso and uh, who tried to uh, lead a revolutionary movement inside that country. And uh, since since he's been assassinated, uh, Burkina Faso has uh, gone uh, gone downhill, both in terms of its efforts, uh, both in terms of quality of life for its citizenry, and uh, its efforts to build a socialist society. 
let's see. Uh, any uh, any uh, any co- uh, any comments on on that from uh, uh, the panelists? Oh, yeah, uh, Brother Anthony. Yes. Yeah, I think you may want to call out who you want to talk to specifically because she's doing the board. So if you just oh, call okay, yeah, yeah, uh, okay. Yeah, so you got you got to call uh, who you're talking to, but otherwise she can't. Talk to her to run a board like that. She can't do that. So okay. but anyway, let me respond to to, to your question, Trent, with Thomas and Cora. Uh, you know, um, well. You know, there, there is a process in terms of maintaining neocolonialism on the continent. Uh, the, the process is very, very simple. It's to identify those Africans on the continent who have a clear vision in terms of what Africa should be. Uh, those Africans who understand that not only the, 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 the vision is important, but also understand that in terms of enacting in, 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 in those visions in terms of creating proper institutions to facilitate that vision, uh, is extremely important. Well, the West perspective is that for those Africans who possess that skill set, who possess that desire, they become enemy number one. And so for Western states, the goal becomes to get rid of those Africans who think uh, who think revolutionary very progressively. And of course, Thomas Sankara was outstanding in terms of analysis, in terms of historical understanding of of not just the world, but specifically his understanding in terms of the West interaction with, with, with African states. So he understood uh, the bottom line is that in order for Africa to endure, it can't be done individually in terms of individual states, but it has to be achieved collectively. He understands in terms of changing the, uh, the, the institutions of Burkina Faso, he would hope to be a catalyst for change throughout the continent of Africa. Well, of course, Western states, particularly the CIA, MI, MI6 and the rest, when they, when they hear this kind of information, then it becomes very, very clear to them what their mission has to be. And that mission is to eradicate or to kill that particular individual who stands in the way. Now, now here's the thing. Now, historically, when we talk about Western intervention, we talk about simply they're come, going over there and they will manage, manage some, some way in terms of actually killing a person physically per se. Well, in terms of the way things work now in the 20th century is that they don't have to intervene militarily in terms of achieving a coup. They get other Africans to carry out the coup. And so what happens is that as you, 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 you facilitate, uh, uh, you know, um, uh, um, um, uh, 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 you facilitate, the Western states facilitate a, a, a realization you know, that in order to, 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 to ensure the, the, uh, the uh, number of uh, the considerable number of Africans willing to carry out Western mandates, uh, they do so by facilitating terms of, uh, for those individuals who are corrupt on the continent by providing um, providing money for them. Also, as a precursor, one of the things is that a lot of these guys who are willing to carry on Western philosophies are, are educated in Western states. And so they're predisposed to think in terms, think of rural in terms of Western terms. And so the kind of exploitation, the kind of uh, individualism, uh, the kind of uh, uh, classism that is so prevalent in Western society, they're willing to they're willing to carry those they're willing they see those kind of those kind of variables as just and proper, and so they're willing to create a society that reflect the kind of you know classism, uh, sectarianism, the kinds of uh, things that divide society, providing that those individuals main, maintain power. 
what these African corrupt African leaders want above all else is power. And so when so when PLO Lumumba talks about the fact that you know that uh, when he talks about uh, you know we're being bewitched, it's not so much as is a, a, a mystical process as it is this, this class dynamic playing itself out in terms of Western I means in terms of African leaders who are willing to play by Western rules at the expense of their countries of their people. And so this is fundamentally still the problem. This is why you, this is see this is why you talk about this, the, the deteriorating conditions of Burkina Faso since the death of Thomas Sankara. But this is precisely part of the program. If you can read Africa progressive and revolutionary leaders, uh, you know you go down the list in terms of assassinations and coups against African leaders. There's a long list. You can go down the list, and inevitably, every time those progressive revolutionary leaders are killed, then those societies slide backwards and that's not by that's no mistake that's all by design see what is it what is important is that you know the 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 masses of african people understand that this kind of neocolonialist mindset constitute a real threat you know to the continent and if and if, and if, and if the masses don't fundamentally understand that this has this has to go then the bottom line is that western states will continue to prop up these corrupt individuals to lead these states uh to the demise of africa now, here's the thing. When we talk about the importance in terms of African people standing up and saying, listen, no more neocolonialism. We, we're fed up with this. No more lionizing the West. No more of the West is right. No, this stuff has to come to an end. We have to create a society that will reflect who we are, reflect our historical understanding in terms of what constitutes life, uh, our, our, our historical understanding in terms of what political systems serve the interests of, of, of most of the people, those kind of those kind of issues can uh, can never be addressed if if the, if, if 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 the masses of people are essentially in a, in a, in find themselves in a situation where they're surveyed 24 hours a day, and that's precisely what's happening because you got states like you got regimes like Israel, states like the U.S., like like the U.K., like France, who provide all provide the, the means in terms of the the corrupt African leaders to spy on their people. And so that spying on, on on the masses of people has a very a, a very cooling impact effect. In other words, you you intimidate, you scare people sufficiently that they're not going to even try to bring about a change in the society. But you do have but you do have situations in which you know increasingly more and more people among the masses are taking a stand and saying, "Listen, no more of this. This has come to an end." Certainly, you have to give props to Julian Malema out of South Africa. In terms of his willingness to stand up and say, "Listen, this, this, this neocolonialism, this, you know, this, 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 this adoption of you know Western standards in terms of going about doing business or in terms of everyday life has to come to an end." Because clearly, in terms of carrying out their their program, it's been it's been very very deleterious or very very destructive to the aspirations of African people, not only in on the continent but throughout the world. And so you can so you do increasingly have people out of the masses of folks who begin to say, "Listen." This has to come to an end. In Sudan, you have increasingly have masses of people who are standing up saying, listen, this stuff has come to an end. All this corruption, all this neocolonialism, all this stuff, you know, now it's time to take into consideration the needs of Africa, the needs of African people. And in order to achieve that, we have to have the institutions, we have to have the political will and the, the, the political authority, you know, to proclaim, you know, that which is Africa as opposed to other outside forces. So increasingly, you have more and more people who are actually beginning to stand up, despite the the, the surveillance, you know, that's provided by Western states, 
to actually take a stand and say, listen, no more. This has to come. This has, this has to change. But make no mistake about it. All of this, you know, all of this usurping of, you know, African leadership is no mistake. It's all by design. So clearly, you know, uh, we can also, you know, and I'm close with this, you know, we can also talk about in terms of when you talk about in the context of America, and you talk about the assassination of revolutionary and progressive leaders in the United States, it's no fluke that these, these individuals are killed, are killed off. Uh, it's all by design. And so every time they're killed off, then those movements tend, tend to wane because, you know, you don't have the kind of dynamism, uh, dynamism, uh, dynamism uh, that you needed in terms of sustaining, you know, those kind of movements. So, so Western states do a very good job in terms of analyzing, you know, who's who in terms of potential for leadership and to begin to neutralize those individuals. When they become too power, powerful, then they devise ways for the state to simply eliminate them in terms of, in terms of erratic, liquidating them or killing them. Uh, so clearly what we got our work, was we talk about here or on the continent, uh, as, as African people, we got our work cut out for us in understanding, you know, that uh, this is a game that we're, we have to, this is a game that we have to understand is very, very real. And if we don't want to understand the rules of that game to devise a method to counter that game, then we become victims of that game. And so clearly we have a, a, a political and moral responsibility to understand, you know, that game, what goes on, how it impacts us, and what we can do in terms of remedying the situation that we find ourselves confronted with. And I close with that. Thank you, uh, Brother Haki. Uh, before, I, uh, before, before we continue, I just want to uh, let the audience know that if they have any comments or, uh, or, or, is, or questions or issues, please feel free to call 323-679-0841 if you have a comment or question. And uh, we'll, uh, we, we'll call out your last four numbers. Thank you. Uh, Brother Robert, uh, your comments on uh, this issue. Um, we're talking about... Um, the Burkina dumbest, Faso, the, yeah. Um, the, the general plan and imperialism in general is, is attack intelligence. Uh, to to what is enlightenment to squash it and let the darkness prevail, and so that they can do their deeds which are dark and which which they don't want to be seen. And um, um, so in Burkina Faso, uh, brother the brother was assassinated because he was intelligent, just like in the U.S. with the COINTELPRO, um, it was to get rid of the, the leadership and the intelligence in the black community to prevent a black messiah, et cetera. Uh, so, you know, imperialism is about, is about anti-intelligence uh, and exploitation. And uh, so, you know, this is what we're faced with. And we have to, we have to struggle uh, to unite ourselves and educate ourselves and defend ourselves. The organization is our main weapon, and uh, and they have finance capital. They can pay people to kill, kill us, and and uh, and they have all all these weapons. Uh, um, we have to be organized. Thank you. Indeed. 
You're welcome. Uh, Sister Eleanor, uh, your comments on uh, uh, Thomas Sankara's assassination? Well, it's been 35 years now, and the struggle continues. And the Sahel is being undermined environmentally. And uh, uh, tomorrow, for example, just before I get into that, I I don't want to lose the point that the International Campaign Justice for Saqqara, the ICJS, continues its fight for truth and justice in uh, the Thomas Shakara and his comrades' case. Now, um, uh, sections of the international implications of the of of the case. Uh, there's a campaign that continues, and what is going to happen tomorrow at Howard University? They are going to um, film, uh, show the film of his speaking in Harlem. Uh, his speech in Harlem, and uh, that will be um, at the Lewis Stokes Health Science Library at Howard University, located at 501 W Street Northwest, and that will be Monday, October 17th at 5 p.m. So it'll give us an opportunity to uh, understand the struggle uh, and how the struggle has continued against, continued and the impunity in which uh, people are, are struggling. And also, coincidentally, there is an Ebola outbreak in Uganda and the current uh, vaccine isn't holding the Sudanese Ebola. So there's a lot going on, but tomorrow at Howard University, October 17th at 5 p.m., you'll be able to uh, hear this revolutionary brother's speech uh, that he made some years ago at how at, at in Harlem, and that will be again at the uh, Lewis Stokes Health Science Library, located on the campus of Howard University, at 501 W Street Northwest, Washington D.C. 20,059. Um, thank you so much. And there are um, events going on throughout the next week, throughout the country, and I believe throughout the world. Thank you. Thank you, uh, Sister Eleanor. Uh, and uh, as I indicated earlier, if any, uh, if anyone has any comments or questions, uh, please call three two three six seven nine zero eight four one. Thank you uh, uh, for uh, for your comments, and um, 
uh, this uh, ins- uh, th- this uh, commemoration shows that uh, that uh, neocolonialism is intensifying in Africa, and so is the resistance against it. And uh, if any of the audience is in the Washington D.C. area, please check this program out. At this time, uh, we'll uh, take a cultural break. And when we come back, we'll uh, go into our main theme tonight, the impact of colleges and universities on the African community. Thank you. Something to my godson Elijah and little girl named Corinne. Say the black of the best. The juice. I face the dark of the flesh and the deep of the roots. I give a holler to my sisters on welfare. If don't nobody else care. And uh, I know they like to beat you down a lot. And when you come around the block, brothers clown a lot. So sweet, don't cry, dry your eyes, never let up. Forgive, but don't forget, girl, keep your head up. And when he tells you you ain't nothing, don't believe him. And if you can't learn to love you, you should leave him. Cause sister, you don't need and I ain't trying to catch up, I just call them how I sleep. You know what makes me unhappy? When brothers make dates and leave a young mother to be a happy. And since we all came from a woman, got our name from a woman, and I came from a woman. I wonder why we take from our women, why we rape our women, do we hate our women? I think it's time to kill for our women, time to heal our women, be real to our women. And if we don't, we'll have a race of babies that will hate the ladies.
the babies on their own. I know it's kind of rough when you're feeling all alone. Daddy's long gone and he left you by your lonesome. Thanks the Lord for my kids, even if nobody else wants them. Cause I think we can make it in fact, I'm sure. And if you fall, stand tall and come back for more. Cause ain't nothing worse than when your son wants to know why daddy don't love him no more. You can't complain, you were selfish. Hell in my hand without a man feeling helpless.
you are listening to Africa on the Move, and Anthony will continue with the program. Uh, thank you. Uh, at this time, we are going to the main topic of our program this evening, the impact of colleges and universities in the African community inside the U.S. And uh, let's see, I want to uh, uh, start off by uh, discussing uh, an interview Roland Martin did with Deion Sanders in which uh, Deion Sanders pointed out that HBCU should stop being football sharecroppers. Uh, I highly recommend uh, this uh, in, uh, uh, looking at this interview. It's on YouTube. Unfortunately, due to technical difficulties, we're not going to be able to feature excerpts from it on our program tonight. However, I highly recommend that uh, that all, uh, that everybody uh, check it out when they get time. Uh, Haki, oh, uh, what are your thoughts on uh, on uh, Deion Sanders' point? And why is it that HBCUs tend to be football sharecroppers? <laughs> well, yeah, well, you know, you know, you know, you know, as we often allude to, you know, uh, not all things are equal. Uh, certainly, in, in 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 the world of, of world of capitalism, uh, one of the things is very apparent. Uh, you know the 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 uh, the focus is all about maximizing wealth. So in that context, when you talk about the talk about maximizing wealth, it doesn't necessarily take into consideration what is fair. <laughs> so so we need to dispense with this notion in terms of what is fair in the context of capitalist society. So in that context, when you talk about small historical you know HBCUs and colleges uh, relative, say you know. You know, bigger institutions. Uh, clearly, uh, when you, when you talk about the potential for for earnings, is it's a great deal more with the larger universities in the consideration that you know, these larger universities they have large endowments. You know, uh, they have political connections. They have all those things they need in terms of in terms of in terms of growth. Those same things are denied smaller historical universities, uh, historical black colleges and universities. Uh, and those things are denied historical black universities simply because the mission of black universities historically has never been about competing with other universities. It's always been about, you know, providing education, uh, not not the best education uh, uh, available, but an education. Uh, to some extent, that has changed over the years as, you know, historical black college universities, you know, have access, you know, to investments. Uh, in terms of making it possible, you know, to bring into these institutions, you know, better technology and those kind of things they need in terms of you know, really competing, you know, uh, you know, on on a global scale. Uh, but bottom line, though, but historically speaking, though, and we talk about in terms of this, uh, in terms of the schism as it comes as it relates to you know uh, to fairness. Uh, one of the things you talk about, you know, putting these, you know, football, you know, these these teams, football teams on the field. Uh, it should be come down to a question in terms of um, sharing the pot equally. 
but that doesn't often manifest itself. So it, it, inevitably, what happens is that the large universities get a larger share of larger share of of the pie, even though the contributions of the the smaller HBCUs are simply discounted. And the question becomes: So why does HBCUs continue to accept smaller portions of the proceeds when it comes to you know performing before these large crowds? Uh, uh, one has to ask himself a lot of that has to do in terms of what HBCUs are willing, you know, to accommodate. Uh, to the extent that HBCUs are willing to to allow themselves to be short, you know, be you know to be uh, to to be taken advantage of, I think that problem lies solely with HBCUs. So it seems to me that HBCUs have to be, be definitive in terms of the stand that they take and say, listen, we come play these football games for these people. The people come out here not only just to see these large universities. But they also come to see these HBCUs compete, uh, you know, because of the history in terms of the, the in terms of the athleticism in terms of HBCUs, and so in terms of in terms of the formula that make these these crowds possible, HBCUs plays a big part in terms of bringing out you know these uh, these these large crowds to see these these football games, and so therefore HBCUs should be adequately compensated. Uh, of course, their position is that no, no, we're not we're not going to do that. Because the bottom line is that you know, listen, we have you know the, when we when you talk about talk about the crowds in the, in the stands, uh, that's a trip. They, their position is that that's a trip to only to large universities, not a trip to smaller universities. And it's very difficult, and I, f- quite frankly, it's a very um, a very peculiar argument to make. Uh, you know, given the fact that when you stop and think about it. When you, when you, when they when they when they, uh, when they assign tickets, a uh, certain number of tickets goes for the for the team that's coming into town, and a certain number goes goes to the home team. So, if a historical black college university football team come into a say a bigger university, uh, half half of those ticket sales are for these for people in those HBCU uh, 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 support. Uh, so, so there's a notion in the fact that it's solely a, a reflection in terms of the powers of large universities to attract people to football games is a basis to give most of the money to, to large universities, I think it's a, it's a sham. But nonetheless, it happens. So it seems to me, Brother Anthony, it's incumbent upon HBCUs to say, listen, listen, we, we incur great expense in terms of traveling you know, across the country to play these games. Uh, what we're getting paid doesn't adequately compensate us for the time and expense it takes to get to your football stadium to play these games. And unless you're going to treat us more equitably, yeah, you know, there, we have no recourse but not to not to participate in the charade. So I think in that context, HBCUs have to think about another way in terms of, you know, subsidizing their program uh, that may exclude uh, you know, the you know, competition, you know, with larger universities. Uh, that's just my own, own own view. But in order to do that, uh, HBCUs, I think, to, to a large extent, have to shred shred this notion, you know, that. Raising funds has to be has to occur with the context of North America. They may have to think about looking global in terms of you know uh, getting funds in terms of the continuous continuance of the program, particularly continuance of the athletic program. Uh, whether or not uh, leaders of HBCUs have the appetite to actually espouse the idea in terms of going outside the U.S. to get funds in terms of the running of the university remains to be seen. But my position is that anything short of a, of a more expensive attempt to raise funds uh, for HBCUs, 
I think the bottom line is that uh, the situation is very, very grim in terms of potential uh, uh, earnings or proceeds. You know, uh, you know, particularly when you talk about uh, 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 you know com- competition against you know large universities. Okay. Thank you, uh, Brother Haki. Uh, Brother Robert, uh, why, uh, in your view, do HBCUs continue to be football sharecroppers? Well, because we're, we were brought here as slaves, and we've been second-class citizens, and we've been struggling for our full citizenship rights. And uh, we're with a stacked debt on the capitalism. We're... We're we're on a stack deck, and so you know we are we the the foundations of these schools were from the freed freed slaves and uh, and the endowments are not that that as well as the Ivy League and other schools, uh, the more predominantly white schools, and uh, so you know it's a matter of. Uh, the the condition that we find black people in, generally speaking, uh, throughout the world, wealth is being withheld from us systematically and uh, purposely. And so these school systems reflect that uh, that historical um, evolution of the political economy. Thank you. You're welcome, Brother Robert. Uh Sister Eleanor, uh, why uh, do HBCUs continue to be football sharecroppers? Uh, I think a lot of it is uh, um, not pulling in the right resources. Like this weekend, uh, Boys State and... um, I think it's Virginia Union, a, a school out of Richmond, um, fought, um, played against a school up in uh, in Baltimore, near Baltimore, Boys State. And this was on mainstream TV. So I think the money's there. I think everything's there. But what's lacking is... Uh, us pulling in the folks that know how to negotiate those big bucks and demand uh, the money that uh, uh, need to uh, be paid to the HBCUs. I think that um, uh, Deion Sanders is the first person to really step up he took that job as head coach three months after George Floyd was uh, murdered. And I don't think that that was completely by accident because he had many other options. And what he's doing right now is politicizing and educating the public as well as the H. Excuse me, the HBCUs and what the possibilities are and what we should be earning. But first of all, uh, it's completely education. I don't think the HBCUs were even aware of what other universities were making. 
And the bottom line is there's a misnomer that HBUs is second-class education and this sort of thing. It's a complete misnomer. The best education some on planet Earth has been received at some of our HBCUs. And it's not only for African Americans, but uh, Vietnamese people during the 70s flooded the HBCUs. Um, Jewish Americans uh, attended medical school and dental school in particular at uh, HBCUs. So we got to re reexamine what roles uh, HBCUs have played in uh, uh, educating America. Now, the fact that so many have gone out of business in the last several years isn't uh, due to a lack of uh, economic or curriculum uh, or curriculum or curriculi problems, but it's a lack of financial management. And we can address this issue by bringing to the table folks with the skills to negotiate contracts for primetime TV, for streaming, for all the, the pots that are there to, for money to be made and not look at it as if, oh, we just need to cover our bus fare or we need to cover our hotel fare. No, we're not trying to cover bus fare and hotels there. It's a new day. We're trying. We're out there to make money. People are making money off of these universities and colleges. Now they're going to make money themselves, and you have to be educated. And Sanders is one of those kind of people that's doing that. And look, his son is a quarterback on that team in Jackson State, and they haven't been defeated by anyone this year. And they they were the champions last year. So it's about faith and self and, 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 and um, just knowing how great we are as a people and pushing forward economically. Uh, Thank you, uh, Sister Eleanor. And I would add that I think, uh, you know, uh, I think the psychological beating we take from suffering under neocolonialism plays a factor in that, too. And uh, let's see. And uh, I want to broaden the discussion a bit. And go into the impact that colleges and universities have in the African community can, can uh, I, um, in general, not just HBCUs, but uh, in general. And uh, one question that comes to mind is uh, with um, with uh, real estate. Uh, the real estate market being the way it is right now, are universities becoming the new landowners 
uh, start off with uh, you, uh, uh, Brother Robert. Um, the, the, the universities, uh, you know, are endowed and, and they have money uh, and tuitions and, and other sources of income. And so they they amassed a certain amount of finance capital, and and so they've been invested in real estate. Stuff. Some of some of them have been selling off real estate, but but uh, but historically, yeah, they do have uh, possibilities of gaining real estate. Uh, uh, I think Howard University has been selling off real estate. Uh, it's a it's a it's a financial management problem. Uh, uh, how much should be? How much they should be in the education building business versus um, the real estate business? Uh, uh, it takes leadership and, and a vision to properly, properly uh, uh, Robert. Okay. Okay. Uh, let's see. Seems like uh, uh, we lost Robert for a moment. Uh, uh, Haki, uh, what are your uh, what what are your thoughts on uh, on uh, what, uh, whether universities are becoming the new landowners? I think I think very much so. I think they really don't have a have a choice. Uh, the bottom line: the president of the universities are judged based upon the bottom line. Uh, how much money are you bring to this university? Certainly, in the context of real estate, uh, you know, uh, a asset that increases, continues to increase in value. Uh, the purchasing of of, of, of real, real estate uh, is the ideal way in terms of patterning your bottom line. So why would they do that? You, you see, there's nothing that's going to preclude them. From from doing that, uh, you know. But the, the the irony is though, when you start to think about, you know, universities, uh, you know, acquiring all this land, and in the process, it causes the you know rents and the, the rents to increase. When you think about that, the, you know, historically, the mission of universities has always been the betterment of society. So when you have a situation where universities are contributing to the ills of society, then that raises a very, a very troubling question in terms of, you know, just. Just what is the mission of universities? And so I think this focus in terms of, in terms of profitability uh, has also sadly impacted universities. And so whereas one time the focus has always been in terms of the quality of education, now it's less so. It's more about the accumulation of dollars or accumulation of wealth. And so in that context, uh, of course, you know, when, you, when you talk about the accumulation of wealth, then certainly one of the ways to, to maximize wealth it's a cut back on actual actual uh, uh, programs that you offer, uh, to cut back on terms of teaching staff, uh, to cut back on terms of those kind of amenities that make you know the make, college, the make colleges and universities you know worth worth uh, studying at. Uh, so clearly, uh, you know this is this is very ironic, but but under the under the current context, when we talk about the decline of capitalism, we talk about you know the fact that these universities are judged by how much. How, how big the endowments are, then clearly when they acquire real estate, they understand that their focus is not on anything other 
than the enrichment, you know, of the university. In that context, they have no no obligation in terms of doing anything to the betterment of society. And so in that context, I think we have to understand that fundamentally, you know, uh, when we look at universities as large, you know, land, landlords, that's precisely what a lot of them are. In, in Richmond, for example, you have um, uh, Virginia Commonwealth University. I mean, it's acquiring, I mean, I mean, I mean, just over a course of a year and a half, I mean, it has inquired damn near about three quarters of the of the city. I mean, this is this is this is this is some pretty severe stuff, and of course, it has a very delicious impact in terms of overall on wages because when you have one university controlling everything, not only in terms of property but also in terms of buildings, you know, for commercial establishments, uh, it can it, it contributes to you know to to unemployment, it contributes to homelessness, it contributes to all those ills in society in which, you know, supposedly, you know, we're we're trying to combat. Uh, so clearly, uh, no one should be surprised, you know, that these these universities are acquiring huge amounts of real estate, because, you know, listen, if it's good enough for 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 billionaires to acquire huge sums of of, of land for the purpose in terms of uh, maximum uh, profiteering, then why wouldn't it be true for universities? So they're doing what. Uh, Essentially, what uh, capitalism uh, requires them to do. And I close with that. Thank you, uh, Sister Eleanor. Uh, what are your thoughts on uh, our universities becoming the new landowners? The universities have been the landowners. Um, for the last 60 years, when you look at um, neighborhoods in Philadelphia, you look at Manhattan uh, with the expansion of Columbia University, you you look at Washington, D.C. with the complete annihilation and displacement of uh, uh, African American neighborhoods such as Foggy in Foggy Bottom, and uh, schools, uh, private schools, and everything else. So they've been doing this for sixty years. The issue is right now is management. Now, Brother Moses said something really um, interesting. Howard University has been selling off land. Sometimes we have. Uh, great intellectuals um, who may be uh, MDs and 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 PhDs as well as JDs. So they have all these credentials, and they become dilettantes. They think that because they have all of these credentials, they know everything. And in reality, Howard University should have had real businessmen, real those people who specialize in real estate management and development at the table when it was examining what it would do with its assets. I've seen a building that Howard University owned was graduate housing, a developer um, came in, uh, Woodner and some other guy, Jonathan Woodner and I forgot the other guy came in, the building 
did nothing to it other than went through the building, corked and sealed every hole in the place, polyurethane, the floors, um, painted the place, and just really um, took care of what were minor defects in the building and put it on the market at 2500 a month. And they didn't do this in 2022. They did this in 1999, 1998. And now we've just seen another prize of Howard University's, the Meridian Dorm. I don't know if Howard University kept a portion of it or not, but now it's on the market and the developer is making money hand over fist. So the reality is, is that we need to reassess ourselves and reassess how we do things and not act as if there's no one that can come to the day table and bring more and help us go forward because uh, we can make that difference. And we go back to Sanders down at Jackson State. Um, I'm sure the top five are going to come to him soon. And I'm sure he'll have to think about it. But I think that man has vision, and he knows that it's important to begin to train the staff that works with him right now and also to begin to see that they get the pay hikes that they deserve and that he has the vision to increase his own salary at Jackson State by bringing different people to the table to negotiate contracts for these um, main media Football games, it doesn't matter whether it's black or white. It just matters that it's the American favorite pastime, football. And people, TV stations want to have it viewed and want to promote it. And streaming and everyone else, whoever else does it, TikTok, whoever the social media folks are, want to see American football. It's a it's a major commodity, and he realizes it and wants to market it as such. So that's what we need to do. And as far as universities being into real estate, that's old news. Look at what VCU did in Richmond, Virginia, Virginia Commonwealth University. So it's just a matter of approach. Some people view themselves as victims. Other people have a team and a board that's put together to make money and grow an institution. Some people come to an institution with great resources like the University of the District of Columbia, and they have a vision where they're going to expand the university and build dormitories and um, build green and do different things like that. 
while other people just see themselves as a part of the petty bourgeoisie and think of themselves as being at a mediocre uh, university. So it's a matter of perspective. And for those who have respect and love for the people um, and are willing to go out and find folks that work in the areas that uh, they are not experts, but uh, these people are the experts, whether it's real estate, whether it's sports medicine, whatever it is, put them on, on at, at the table, and you're going to see money in your pocket. And, and universities that have long been in this country have long been into real estate. It's not a new thing for them. Indeed not. Uh, As a matter of fact, I think it goes back at least to the 19th century when there were land-grant, you know, uh, colleges established and whatnot. Okay. Eleanor, you had another point? I'm sorry. I didn't mean to cut you off. Well, well, the land-grant universities are an example. The University of the District of Columbia was one of the uh, Martin land-grant universities, and it was given real estate in Ward 3 in the District of Columbia and had the possibilities of doing all sorts of great things. One good thing did happen. They worked out a deal with uh, IntelSec, but the problem with the deal with IntelSec, and they built a green building more 40 years ago and did all of these things. The UDC board didn't make sure that they maintained ownership or partial ownership of that building. Moreover, the Board of Trustees decided to sell off much of the, 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 the land that was given to the University of the District of Columbia. And it was an odd situation where none of this land had been developed. It was green space. It wasn't at that time... Um, uh, apartment buildings and homes where people were going to be displaced. It was not. It was land where the old gentry had lived and had long ago moved out, and it was underdeveloped property between Porter Street and Albemarle, 34th Street, and Connecticut Avenue. But uh, the university is now in a pinch, has no room because they sold off all the the board, sold off the land to the Israeli government, to Ghana, to Kuwait. What what for? To IntelSat, to um, housing developers. Mm. Ridiculous. No, actually, uh, it seems like a uh, uh, a lot of um, a lot of HBCUs seem to suffer from short-sighted leadership. 
but uh you know uh you know uh be that as as it is oh and uh if uh if anyone has any questions or comments please feel free to call 323-679-0841 uh let's I want to raise uh one other question uh before we go to our break uh with um with all the with all the uh the the money these colleges uh make in uh in, in real estate uh has that really benefited uh the work uh the african workers much who live in these communities that are displaced by uh, this uh, expansion, Haki. No, 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 no. On the contrary, they they don't benefit. Uh, you know, uh, one of the things when we talk about the these these large acquisitions of land, uh, it contributes to an overall rise in the uh, rise in the economy. So as prices increase, it certainly makes it virtually impossible for people on the a, a minimum wage, uh, you know, to be able to afford the necessary housing uh, uh, it takes in terms of survival. So it sort of ex- exacerbates the, the situation that poor people are confronted with. But keep in mind, you know, these, these, these universities are not concerned in terms of the, 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 the negative consequences of the action. Uh, capitalism doesn't, doesn't, doesn't require them to, 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 to engage in self-critique. In terms of you know, their business dealings, in terms of the negative impact on the community, they're not concerned with that. Their bottom line is growth. Uh, they have a board of directors that that the president is uh, is uh, responsible to, uh, and uh, the, the the pressure is you know listen, you increase you, you increase the bottom line by any means necessary. If that means the dissolution or the or or, or the uh, or, or the increase in misery impacted uh, impacting you know uh, workers you know uh, throughout these throughout these these towns or cities then so be it uh, there is there is no really concern and certainly there is no consequence in terms of this kind of practice so this is a fundamental question in terms of capitalism in terms of inequality uh, you know one of the things that when you, when you talk about in terms of you know institutions having access to 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 to, to all this land uh, when you talk about that such a thing then clearly you got to understand that in quite all this land, then you can impose a tremendous amount of, of inequality. And impose that inequality, uh, you know, and, and you know, in a system that really cares about people, uh, that will be uh, clearly that will be morally wrong. But in the context of capitalism, it's morally right. Well, not morally right, but certainly is right. Uh, there's no problem in terms. There's no cost associated with you know this blind kind of average, this blind kind of greed, uh, which women, which creates a situation when people essentially. You don't don't have the, the basics in terms of in terms of survival in society. Uh, these 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 uh, universities are not concerned with any of that, and that's part and parcel in terms of the capitalist creed uh, which says that you know uh, growth by any means necessary. Uh, so clearly, uh, you know, so the impact on on the masses of people, uh, particularly workers or poor people, in the society is 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 well documented, but yet this practice goes on. So this is part and parcel of how capitalism works. Uh, Robert, uh, what? Uh, uh, let's see. Uh, what? 
what are your uh, some uh, same question? Uh, has uh, the uh, how has the of these uh, colleges and universities uh, benefited the African community? And has it? Well, that's the question. Um, I think you have to look at case-by-case situations. Uh, I think I'm sure that somewhere some universities have done something, I'm sure, uh, because I, I don't believe everyone's just after that almighty dollar. Uh, I think there's some people, some universities that are committed to educating people, and uh, and uh, and that and they want to grow with, by educating people. Uh, but but you know the, the we live in a capitalist system, and, and the universities are are part of that system, are in, within that system, and so you know that the tendency to be con- be more concerned with the bottom line is there, and it, and it's, it affects education and and um, how we're educated and whether or not we're educated, uh, because it's, it's whether it's profitable or not, whether whether the class is going to be profitable or whatever, and uh, so you know we we just we're in a capitalist system. Uh, um, um, it takes education, it takes politicalization, it takes you know a real movement of people to for a conscious conscious political movement to educate people and not not be so concerned about dollars and obtaining dollars and that that's 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 that requires um Revolutionary thinking, and um, and so that's the that's the situation we're faced with. Thank you. You're welcome, Sister Eleanor. Uh, what uh, what in your in your view has uh, all this wealth accumulation by these colleges and universities benefited? Uh, the masses of uh, African workers. And well, if not, why? Um, I don't see uh, this wealth as having benefited uh, African workers. Now, you see what happened as an example of oh, the way it, it has is that in the District of Columbia, the students at Georgetown University realized the low wages that African workers were making when they realized that African-American workers were making uh phenomenally low wages despite their huge tuition when they saw that Patrick Healy was the first president it used to be called the first president of uh, a black president of a university in the United States and that university was Georgetown sold his own brothers and sisters down uh 
River and what that meant after 1806 was uh, slaves became extremely valuable because it was illegal to import them uh, from abroad any longer. So uh, the slave owners down south were paying big dollars, high dollars for slaves. And Patrick Healy, Father Patrick Healy, a Jesuit priest, sold off his uh, Georgetown University slaves to build this incredible institution. You see Healy Hall that stands today on the campus of Georgetown. And he had great vision in terms of building an institution that was concerned with one thing, making its money on educating people and intellectual products. And if he wasn't successful or anyone was less than successful in that arena, they simply needed to go to the provost and sue the university because they were not successful economically after leaving their pristine Georgetown education. Now, on the other hand, uh, so what happened was the students had strikes uh, demanding that the wages of the Georgetown workers be increased. You know, we go back from the early 19th century, jump up into the latter 20th century. And they demanded that the wages, the Georgetown students demanded that wages be increased. And not only were they successful in in causing Georgetown wages to be increased, there ended up being a citywide increase. And D.C., became like uh, Oregon, like, um, well, like Seattle, Washington, became one of the first cities to have that $15 minimum wage. And uh, so the university had a positive impact on on the wage owners, I mean, wage earners in that situation. But in reverse, you see George Washington University underpaying workers, its African workers in particularly, and utilizing them in construction and all other areas at nominal wages and then replacing them with other minorities after a lion's share of the work was done, after the demolition, after the demolition uh, being exposed to asbestos and lead paint and all of this, well, those workers either aged out or were simply displaced and replaced by other workers. And uh, no, so there, I don't see any 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 benefit 
in 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 that scenario, in the George Washington University scenario, and in the long run, the Georgetown University scenario uh, has ended up in some ways being a setback because the cost of living in the district is so extraordinarily high. So, you know, it's a it's a complex question and uh you see the same issue in Boston where there are higher minimum wages than uh nationally but uh that means little or nothing. But then you look at states like New Mexico. Now in Santa Fe, New Mexico, there's an Ivy League school there called Saint John's. And St. John's um, has had um, has been there, but it hasn't had a adverse impact on wage earners. But the wage earners there are the indigenous people, generally the Chicano people. But that may be changing. And in Albuquerque, the University, the land grant university, uh, the University of New Mexico, um, tended to pay fair wages, but the number of Africans um, employed was limited because of the limited number of Africans in the city of Albuquerque overall. And then we can go to El Paso where you see UTEP and uh, Fort Bliss. So you see both a U.S. military installation and a a state university. And uh, you can see where it's had uh, a reasonable impact on wages in that uh Africans tended to settle in El Paso after leaving the military simply because of uh the access to education and the wages but that's only in certain areas brother Anthony because in the textile industry and other industry uh Wages are dismal in El Paso, but in terms of certain work on the campus and on the uh, fort, the wages are 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 higher, or had been higher than the national average. Okay, thanks, Sister Lenora. Um, we'll go to. Uh, uh, a cultural break and after this break uh we'll have our final thoughts uh for uh for for, for today's program. Uh oh. Hey, hey, hey. Hey, what's up man? Hey, Brother, 
a brother There's far too many of you dying You know we've got to find
All right. At this time, uh, we'll have our uh, final uh, thoughts uh, uh, for tonight's program. Uh, Brother Robert, uh, uh, what are your final thoughts for tonight? It's been interesting. Um, I thank you for allowing me to be on the show. Um, this this is a uh, um, we need to politicize uh, and have people study and get organized uh, because we we have to have consciousness. Uh, to say without information you can't think, without organization you can't think clearly. And we need people who are not just interested in in dollars and cents per se, but are interested in people and the needs of people and what we can do to better the conditions of the people. Uh, we need that kind of leadership. Uh, and, you know, the the tendency to to uh, want to make money and, uh, and build and uh, build and build and build and uh, without consideration for the the impact that it's having on the lives of people uh, and their day-to-day lives and their long-term lives. And uh, so, you know, we need political consciousness raising. And I'll just leave it right there. Thank you. You're welcome. Thank you, Brother Robert. Sister Eleanor, your final thoughts for this evening. I'd like to thank you for having me on the show this evening and um, like to remind people that Thomas Shakura and uh, the event tomorrow, you can find out more on Quick Links, Shakura Affairs, and also Thomas Shakura. And just to be reminded tomorrow at Howard University, um, the event is going on at 501 W Street, and uh, it should be uh, informative. That is Washington, D.C., the 17th of of, uh, October. 501 W Street Northwest, the Lewis Stokes Library, Howard University. And thank you so much. And thank you to Brother Haki, you, Brother Anthony, Sister Susie, and Brother Moses. Thank you. Good night. You're welcome. Thank you. And good night. Brother Haki, are your final thoughts for this evening? Yeah, uh, you know, there's a, a real irony, you know, um, yeah, there's a real, can you hear me? Yes, I can. Yeah, there's a real irony sweeping this nation. Uh, one of the things, you know, uh, you know, very recently they called for additional funds uh, for the uh, Ukrainian, for the U- Russian-Ukrainian um, conflict. Uh, you're talking about $58 billion. Now, what is what is interesting about this is that you know the more they fund this 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 this, this, this conflict, uh, well, I understand that their motivation in extending the conflict, in particular, I understand the U.S. motivation in terms of extending the conflict, is that in doing so, you know, you can greatly weaken Russia. 
Uh, the problem is that uh, this strategy doesn't appear to be particularly effective because Russia has been doing the necessary strategic things in terms of, you know, um, not only protecting its economy, but also doing a very good job in terms of mass producing, you know, uh, the kind of weaponry it needs in terms of its fight, you know, against against the Ukraine, ultimately of uh, the NATO, NATO states. So clearly, uh, we have to keep in mind that all this funding of Ukraine has a devastating impact on the U.S. economy domestically. Uh, one of the things that we talk about, the rising unemployment, rising homelessness, uh, is disparity between the half and the half nots, uh, declining wages. When you think about all of these things and you ask yourself, well, if these all these things are happening, then why why would why would the U.S. government continue? To fund a war effort in which they know is doomed to fail, uh, you know. Uh, so, you know, one, in, in addition to that, I think one thing we have to keep in mind is that, you know, if the U.S. government's strategy is that we're going to greatly weaken Russia by funding Ukraine without taking into consideration uh, the uh, devastating impact that funding has on the U.S. domestic economy, then keep in mind there has to be an alternative strategy in terms of combating or dealing with the fact you know, that funding the Ukrainian effort is greatly draining the U.S. resources. And, and so in that context, I think it's important that we begin to understand, you know, the only option in terms of, in terms of uh, dealing, with, with dealing with that issue that the U.S. government has to, because it has no other choice, but it has to invest greatly in terms of the proliferation and legitimization of right-wing forces in America. You see, one of the things that we have to keep in mind, you know, by legitimizing right-wing forces, uh, not only do you do you do you do you do you do you keep in place a a a a a a group of individuals, you know, you can utilize at any point to carry out mass killings, but more more importantly, what it does is impose a division in the society. Division is key. Because one of the things in terms of facilitating, and one of the important thing about facilitating division, is that as long as people divide, there's no there's no justification, there's no reason for people to even engage in discourse or discussion around what's going on in society. So as a consequence, you get a lot of people on the right believing all kinds of nefarious kinds of things, simply because it serves serves their political interest or their or their political biases. Uh, uh, so, you know, so when we talk about this kind of division that is that is, that is implicit in American society, formulated by those positions of power, we have to understand at some point that division is going to is, go, is, is going to is, is not only going to spread, but at some point the dividing forces are going to are going to uh, are going to uh, uh, they're going to um, they're going to actually um, come in, come in, they're going to act, not only conflict, but they're actually going to create a situation where, in which they have to collide. Uh, and this is the very, very real danger in terms of what's going on. So when people talk about the inevitability of, of authoritarianism in society, they talk about the evolution of fascism in American society, it's not, uh, it's not a misnomer. It's not some esoteric notion uh, that, that, in fact, that uh, these kind of things are taking place. These things, that without a fact, are taking place right before our eyes. And, and if we don't understand fundamentally what's going on, then we are, then, 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 you know, then I, I, got to, I have to say this, that we are somehow complicit in our own in our, in our own destruction because if we don't see this as they do this, then we're we're fundamentally at fault. One of the things you talk about the proliferation of right wing media in the society, you got to ask yourself, what, 
who is who is funding these right wing media? Who's funding all of the stuff? You see, who legitimizes these right wing media in terms of uh, 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 news uh, news narrative, which which paints these people as somehow people who are really concerned in terms with the change in society? Not necessarily people who are whose position is that in order to resolve the issues they're faced with, they see destruction, massive destruction of their fellow human beings as a resolution to the problems that they face. When, when, so when media doesn't convey that the dark side in terms of these movements, then it's complicitous in terms of legitimizing these movements. And this is what we have to really fundamentally we have to understand. And, if, you know, and, as, and I got to say, you know, I continue to say, you know, if we don't fundamentally understand, if we see this stuff and we don't, still don't put one plus one together, then, you know, the, it's in, then it's the, 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 the problem lies with us. You see, we have to understand the nature of the beast. This is a historical process. America's not immune from history. As much as people like to believe that America is somehow ex- exceptional, atypical, as they say, America's not exceptional. The same forces that contribute to, 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 to the Nazis in Germany's uh, Italy, um, uh, you know, um, the same forces that contribute to, to the, the expansion of the Nazis in those areas also contribute to the expansion of, of those right-wing kind of forces right here in America. And so in that context, we're talking about, you know, given the fact that the, in, the, the, the inequality in the society that impacts the that impacts the, 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 the greater society, the only recourse for government officials or the U.S. or particularly the capitalist class, the only recourse for them is to is to pit people against one another, to convince one group of people that the problem lies in another group of people. And it always works because in a time of scarcity, when things get tough, people tend to bring the grasp on their subjectivity. People don't tend to be objective when they when they can't they don't have food, shelter, uh, you know when they can't when they can't find education for their children. In short, but there's no future for them. They very quickly grasp on to all the kind of subjective subjective notions, simply because it makes them feel better about who they are. And this is a fundamental problem that we're confronted with in society. So as this as, so as this capitalist society deteriorates, we better understand. You know that our situation in society is very, very precarious, and we we have to fundamentally understand that. And and as much as I would like to think that you you know that in a, in the context of the left, that everybody who's quote unquote identified with the left are committed to to change. The bottom line, that's not true. So I would never advocate that's true. Uh, just as people on the right uh, respond to the social economic conditions. Uh, to make them grasp to those to, to sub, sub, subjective notions, the same is true for people on the left. They also subjective notions in terms of in terms in terms of you know uh, the, the reality as it exists in America. So in that context, they too are easily manipulated. Just that they are manipulated on the right, they are manipulated on the left. And so we had to understand that. So as African people, as an oppressed people, then we better damn well understand the nature of the challenge. And if we don't understand the nature of the challenge, the bottom line is that who can we blame? It's not like no one can say, hey, no one ever told me. I didn't know. We tell you on a weekly basis what's going on, and we tell you to do the research for yourself to find out you know, what's going on. You know, We encourage you to do that, and it's important that you do that. But in closing, Brother African, let me just say it's important that people you know, unravel the matrix because one of the things in terms of the kind of um, uh, duplicitousness, uh, you know, uh, as, as evident you know, by the way the, the U.S. government operates, 
one thing is clear. Uh, those things that we need to know will never be, they'll never, they'll never tell us those things that we need to know. Uh, when we look at, when we go online and we research, then we have to keep in mind that a lot of the stuff that we read uh, for disinformation purposes is designed to deceive us. So we have to look at the stuff, read the stuff with a critical understanding in terms of what we're reading. Without that critical element in terms of our analysis, then we, we allow ourselves to be deceived and say kind of th- all kinds of things, which, are, which is precisely what they want us to believe. So, criti- so being critical is very key in terms of survival, but critical skills can only be sharpened by reading a tremendous amount of different things, not the same things or the same material. Different materials, over, different materials you know, over, over, you know, on a consistent basis. That's how you sharpen your critical skills, and that becomes very, very important. So have a seen that, Brother African. You have a good night. You, you as well, Brother Haki. And uh, thank you uh, to all the panelists and the listening audience for your participation in tonight's program. And uh, remember that uh, we have to get organized. And we have to join an organization that's guided by a revolutionary ideology. Uh, thank you, uh, uh, Susie, as well. And uh, have a good night. Uh, see you next week uh, at the same time, 7 p.m. Thank you. Good night. Michael, eles não ligam para gente.